good morning. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray before we get going, and then uh, I'll probably pray again for uh, after I read the, the text, um, but let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for just giving us this opportunity to come and uh, to gather. Um, we know that in the Christian life, it's not all about uh, coming together one day a week, but there is something very profound um, when the ecclesia, when the church gathers um, for weekly worship. Um, and, and, and Lord, we know that from your word, we know that when your people gather, um, you are present, you are in our midst, and we know that um, your word goes out in power, and we know that you use uh, the preaching of your word when we gather corporately uh, as a part of our sanctification, as a part of our growth. Um, as the body of Christ. And so we just pray, God, that today we would zero in on what it is uh, you want from us today. You desire worship. You desire praise. And I pray that we would see this time as not merely um, a part of a routine, but we would see this time as, um, as something that brings you honor and something that brings you praise. I pray that your word would go out and not return void. I pray that you would use um, a weak vessel like myself, Father, to make you look powerful, for it is your power made perfect in weakness, and I indeed am weak, and Lord, I need your help. And so I pray that the power would be in your word, and I pray that your word um, would do wonders uh, today. And so we pray for these things, um, and it is in your precious Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Can we hear okay? I feel like when I put it up here, we can hear. Do you hear it like this when I'm not touching it? Okay, awesome. Okay. Well, um, we are in the thick of our series through the Gospel of Mark. Um, if you've been here the last month, we've been preaching through the book of Mark uh, every Sunday. Um, and we're seeing uh, the ministry of Jesus move along quite astoundingly. Uh, we're seeing um, him do some incredible things. At, at, during Mark 1, if you guys remember back uh, when we started with Mark 1, uh, Jesus jumps right in to his ministry. Um, he, he calls uh, his disciples. Uh, he specifically intentionally pours time into 12 disciples, later known uh, as the 12 apostles. And he jumps right in. He jumps right into things with them along uh, by his side. Um, and we've seen him do miraculous wonders. Uh, we've seen him teaching and preaching. And he's, he's really spending most of his time geographically in a very rural area. He's preaching and teaching and doing these miracles uh, in the Galilean uh, countryside around the Galilean Sea. Uh, and we've noticed that when he preaches and when he teaches, he does so with authority. Uh, but we're seeing that his preaching and teaching is also accompanied by miracles. He's doing amazing things through the miraculous. And he's starting to amass quite a following. He's sort of becoming a celebrity. I mean, people are hearing about these miracles uh, and they're wanting to see. And so they're drawn to him. And so today we come to this juncture in the Gospel of Mark. It's going to be Mark chapter 6. Um, and, and Jesus has done some amazing things. He said some incredible things. Uh, but at this point in the story, we're going to see that, yes, there's a heightened sense of interest. He's sort of a celebrity at this point. People are interested and they're liking what they're seeing. There's a heightened sense of interest. But there's also, at this point in the Gospel, you will see a heightened sense of opposition. Uh, there are, there's a, a large amount of people who are not really liking what he's doing and what he's saying. 
Um, and so today, in this chapter, Mark chapter 6, and I'll tell you the specific verses we're reading in a second, but in this chapter, Jesus makes this homecoming. He's coming home. Uh, he's going back uh, to his little town, Nazareth. Um, and we're going to see that he's, he's not well received. He's not well received. People are not interested in him coming back. Um, and actually, the people in his town that know him and that are familiar with him, they're actually offended. They're offended by him. He's saying all these things. Uh, he's uh, claiming all this authority upon himself. Um, and so his hometowners, they've heard all the buzz, um, but they're offended. They're not liking it. So uh, we're going to turn our attention to Mark chapter 6. Um, I'm going to be reading from uh, the English Standard Version. You can read from whatever English translation you have. It might be easy to follow along with the version I'm reading. Um, I would encourage you, if you have a phone, if you have a Bible, look at the, the text yourselves. I don't want anyone to think that uh, you know, it's some idea that I'm contriving. I want us to together examine the scriptures and to even check me in what I'm saying. Is what I'm saying true? Is what I'm saying consistent with the Bible? So I would encourage you guys to uh, get into the text yourselves. If you don't have a Bible, we have um, a table back there uh, with copies of the scripture. Um, you can put your, your hand up and we would be happy to get you uh, a copy of God's word. We're going to be reading Mark chapter 6, the first six verses. The first six verses. So I'll let you turn there uh, and then I will begin reading. Yeah, if you need a Bible, don't. Um, I, there are times I, I actually forget God's word and I have to get one from the back too, so don't feel ashamed about it at all. Okay, so Mark chapter 6, the first six verses. I'm going to begin reading here, and then we will get right in. Mark chapter 6, this is the word of the Lord. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us right now? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went ab about among the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray one more time. Father God. Sorry, my mic went out here. Lord Jesus, we pray um, for the preaching of your word. We pray for your help. We want to understand it. Uh, we know that um, it is truth. We want to know that it is truth. I pray that it would convince, it, convince us of your majesty and your glory. We need your help understanding it. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Mike keeps going out here. It's fine. Maybe the, maybe the batteries are somewhere. Okay, yeah, it's fine. Sorry, guys. Batteries, batteries going in and out. Can you, hear, can you hear me? 
Okay. So, I'm just going to hold it. Okay, so Mark chapter 6, first six verses. I want us to hold on to this one main idea and question, sort of a main idea question, uh, as we look at this passage today. And the main idea is this. Jesus has come. He has been received. He has been rejected. How will you respond to Jesus? So Jesus has come. He has been received. He has been rejected. How will you respond to Jesus? And from this main idea, uh, you want to go ahead and make the change? Okay. <laughs> Sorry, guys. back on track. So Jesus has come. He's been received. He's been rejected. How will you respond to Jesus? And from this main point uh, comes, uh, this main idea comes three points that I want us to consider from the text. Three points. Um, And they are these. The first is this. The substance of faith in Jesus does not rest in your amazement at his teachings and your captivation with his miracles. The substance of faith in Jesus does not rest in your amazement at his teachings and your captivation with his miracles. And the second point is this. It's it's more, it's actually a question. When you hear the message of Christ, what is your response? When you hear the message of Christ, what is your response? And then thirdly, you will only find Jesus through your faith. You will only find Jesus through your faith. Well, let's get into that first point here. The substance of your faith does not rest in your amazement at his teachings and your captivation with his miracles. First point. Well, have you ever heard of these hometown hero stories? Have you guys ever heard of stories about hometown heroes? Maybe men and women who have come back after serving valiantly overseas uh, at war. Uh, they return home. Maybe they're, they're decorated with honors, medal of honor, different types of, of accolades. Uh, maybe a, a, a statue is erected for them. Uh, they're shown great honor. They're treated as heroes. Um, in, in America, oftentimes, it's, it's, uh, it's about an athlete. So maybe it's a small-town athlete who, uh, really against all odds, Uh, He made it out of his hometown. He ended up going to play uh, college sports somewhere. And then from there, makes it to the pros. Uh, And that town really looks at that person as a hero. Uh, I know in my hometown, it was a really small town uh, in Arizona, if you were an athlete and you even made it out of your town to play college sports, I mean, even at a community college level, and you came back, you were a hero. I mean, it just didn't even matter. Like, if you made it out and played college sports, uh, you, you were a, home t- a hometown hero. So we've all heard these types of stories, right? The hometown hero comes back. Um, well, today's passage shows uh, really the exact opposite response. Uh, we're going to see that this is not the experience uh, for Jesus as he makes his homecoming. Not his experience at all. And he's done far more amazing things than any of those hometown hero examples I just gave. I mean, Jesus has already done incredible things. He's literally, we saw from last week's passage, he raised someone from the dead. He's healing the sick. He's saying amazing things. He's applying the Old Testament scriptures and prophecies to himself. Uh, he's doing some awesome things. Uh, but when he comes home, 
His hometowners in dinky old Nazareth, uh, they don't care. To them, this is just, man, this is just Jesus. Like, we grew up around this guy. Um, we grew up around his snotty-nosed brothers and sisters. This is Jesus. Everybody uh, in Nazareth knows everybody. Uh, this, this is a town of about 150 or 200 people, okay? I don't even know if that's considered a town. That's like a village. I mean, 200 people, everybody knows each other, and actually it's known as a town of nobodies. Um, really a bad reputation. Everybody knows kind of the outcast Jewish people. They're not devout in their faith. They're not devout in their religion. Uh, they're uneducated. Um, actually, if you were to go to John chapter 1, one of um, Jesus' first disciples, Nathaniel, he actually says this about Nazareth. He says this. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of this town? It's just got that kind of reputation. So here's Jesus. Comes to his hometown. Everybody knows him. Uh, this time he comes back with a squad. He's got his 12 disciples with him. Uh, and notice what he does very shortly after his arrival. He just walks in on the Sabbath day. Sabbath day is uh, this day of religious observance. And he walks right into the synagogue, which is like, uh, if you picture like a town center church or a mosque or something like that, the synagogue in the area, the surrounding rural area, Jesus walks right in um, and he starts teaching. Uh, and it says that many who heard him were astonished. They were amazed. And we know more about this story if we were to go to another gospel. If you were to go to Luke, the gospel of Luke, the, the, that gospel writer, Luke, gives actually a little bit more detail about this situation. Uh, in Luke chapter 4, he says that Jesus began, began to expound specifically from Isaiah chapter 61. If you're familiar with your Bibles, Isaiah is a book that was written hundreds of years before God, uh, Mark's writing his gospel that we're reading today. Hundreds of years before, Jesus shows up. Uh, and he starts preaching from Isaiah 61. Um, if you remember uh, that passage, it, it talks about someone who will come and announce that the day of the Lord is here. Uh, someone who is here to set the captives free. Uh, a messianic figure. And Jesus um, actually fulfills, in that Luke 4 passage, he fulfills that prophecy to himself. So Jesus shows up in the synagogue and he starts preaching. And he applies an Old Testament passage about a prophet who would come. And he applies it to himself. And the Luke account says that those who were present, these townsmen, these townies, they were astonished and they, were, they marveled at his words. And then what? Well, let's look, let's look at the text. Um, their amazement quickly deteriorates. Like, wow, this guy has wisdom. He's an amazing teacher. And then it quickly deteriorates into skepticism. And then it's followed by a barrage of rhetorical questions that start to circulate around. These are rhetorical questions. These, these townies know Jesus. They're not asking these questions uh, because they don't know the answer. They're asking these questions because they absolutely know the answer to them. I'll just read these, these questions for you. Um, we have them right in front of us. But the questions are, the, are, are this. Where did this man get these things? Where did this man get these things? Where is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And so these are rhetorical questions of sort of, these are, these are questions of doubt. 
And, and I want us to sort of ponder the significance and the discouraging, disheartening nature of these questions for a moment. Okay? Because these are people that have grown up around Jesus. They've grown up around Christ. They've seen him with their own eyes. Uh, you know, back in the first century, people didn't move around. It wasn't as transient as, uh, as uh, th- things are today. I mean, people stayed in that town their whole lives. They didn't leave. Uh, and so they've grown up around him. They've seen him. They've laid their eyes on him uh, since he was a child. And as far as they know, uh, they've never seen him do anything wrong, right? He's sinless. He's Jesus. They've never seen him do anything wrong. But he was a carpenter. He's uncredentialed. Uh, he's uneducated, just like all of them. And now they're hearing these amazing stories. Uh, they're, seeing, they're actually seeing miracles with their own eyes. Uh, and they've heard the authority and the wisdom by which he teaches. And so this seems to be a mental hurdle for them. This is something that they cannot get over. Uh, these things that are happening uh, are just, they're not enough for them to say, you know what? We accept him, we believe him, and we take him at his word. Well, this, this actually becomes the normative pattern of response in the Gospels. We'll read forward in Mark as we continue Mark and you read the Gospels. This is the normative pattern. People are astonished and amazed at his teachings and his miracles, um, but we see that at the end of Jesus' life, all of these people that were astounded at him, the majority of them that were astonished, they abandoned him. Uh, even some of his own disciples that are with him in this passage deny him. They doubt him. Uh, you remember Thomas. Thomas was doubting Jesus after seeing his resurrected body. He, he, Jesus was in front of him, and he was still doubting Jesus. So the normative pattern that we see is you're awestruck one day, and then you're unimpressed the next. You praise him one day, and then you kill him the next. This is what we see in the Gospels. Uh, and so we see from this specific text uh, and many others, if you were to go to Mark 4, John 11, uh, just to name a few, you see that Jesus uh, performs miracles, like raising people from the dead. Um, you hear um, incredible things coming from his lips uh, through his teaching. But these things are not ultimately supplying faith to the many people that are encountering him and seeing him. I mean, at the end of his life, he's abandoned. It, obviously, these things that he's doing, they're not supplying uh, the faith of those that are encountering him. And so let's fast forward. Here we are uh, to the here and now, 2,000 years later, and we can see this um, for, for us as Christians, our perspective on this. We can see uh, this around the world uh, today. Um, we see preachers and teachers. Uh, they're coming in the name of Jesus. They're preaching fluffy, kind of polished, pretty messages. Um, and people are really amazed. They're captivated by uh, some kind of public speaking ability, some kind of message, uh, charisma. Um, but ultimately, people are leaving void of a solution uh, to their greatest problem. Um, many preachers and teachers uh, have come and they've preached Jesus as a good moral teacher or just a good man. But they've ultimately left people with a person, just a mere person, Who's good? Yeah, we certainly think his morals, his morality is a good thing. But ultimately, we're leaving people with a Jesus who can't save if he's just a good moral teacher. Um, apologists have been notice, noting this for years. They've been noting this for years. This is um, a quote uh, from, uh, in general from apologists. That we insult Christ 
if we view him as merely a good teacher or a miracle worker. We insult Christ if we view him as merely a miracle worker or a good moral teacher. So the question for us here today that we want to wrestle with in this first section is, what is it that supplies saving faith, saving belief? What is it that supplies saving faith, saving belief? And friends, I want to say that the substance, the substance of the faith that we see from Scripture, the substance of faith in Jesus is found in the full story of Christ and his redemption. It's found in the perfect righteousness given freely to all who believe and trust that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he lived a perfect life, he died in our place for our sins, and then he defeated death in the resurrection. So I want to remind us that, yes, you absolutely should be astonished by his teaching. You absolutely should be amazed. We should praise God and be like, wow, this man is coming with such authority. You should be astonished. You absolutely should be captivated by his miracles. That should amaze you that he's doing these things. Um, you absolutely should be familiar with who he is in his humanity. We should study the scriptures and be familiar with Jesus and what he came to do. But these things are not enough to secure our salvation. Faith in what he has done on behalf of sinners, on behalf of your sin, my sin, that type of faith will yield eternal life and eternal joy for all of us. And so that brings us to where we are here in this room today. Um, I know that many of us in here uh, have, have been following Christ confidently uh, for many years, faithful believers. Um, and then there might be some of us in here who are just flat out unbelievers, or we are here uh, and we're asking questions. Maybe we're not discounting Jesus completely, uh, but we're here asking questions, perhaps uh, skeptical um, and curious. So many of us are here with different perspectives uh, on Jesus, different perspectives about Jesus. So the question that I want all of us, Christians, unbelievers, skeptics, I want us to wrestle with this question is, when we hear the message of Jesus, how will we respond? When we hear the message of Jesus, how will we respond? Look with me um, at the end of verse 3. Uh, we go back to the text and, and look at the end of verse 3 here. After um, a series of rhetorical questions uh, asked by Jesus to his fellow townsmen, um, look at what it says at the end here. It says that they took offense at him. They took offense at him. First they marveled. First they're amazed. Then they doubted in their uh, questions, and now they're offended. Offended to the point that they refuse to give him honor. They refuse to give him honor. That word offense in the Greek, I really like the, the Greek uh, word for offense. It's actually scandalizomai, scandalizomai. Uh, so they're actually, they're not just offended, they're scandalized. They're scandalized by all this buzz around Jesus, their fellow townsmen. Um, they hear his words, and they have heard about his works. They're not even denying his miracles. They're not even denying that what he's doing is happening. Yet in the face of this clear evidence that Jesus is not of this world, that he's otherworldly, that he is indeed Christ, the Son of God, they are still offended. They're still offended. And then we look at verse 4. 
And it says that Jesus responds with a saying. Jesus responds with a saying that I'm sure everyone in this, wor- in this uh, room has heard at some point. Um, and it, maybe you've heard it out of context. I've heard it out of context. Uh, but it's this. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. You might have heard it sort of uh, worded differently. A prophet is not welcome uh, in his, his hometown. Um, admittedly, I used, to, I used to use this verse and apply it to myself. I used to apply this verse to myself ignorantly and arrogantly. I remember early in my Christian walk, I was 18 years old. Um, I had just come to Christ in college. Uh, and I was zealous and I was excited. Um, I, had, I had literally been transformed and changed by the gospel. Um, and I remember coming home after my first semester in college. Uh, and uh, I won't tell you my, t- if you ever want to hear my testimony, uh, this might add a little bit more to this story. But um, I went home and I went to the gym. And, uh, and I, started, um, I started to work out. And in the gym, because I, I used to play sports in my town, in the gym I saw some of my old rivals in there. Like, and it was funny. I mean, I had been changed. I was new. I think I even waved at some of them. I was like, hey, guys, you know. And uh, they, they were staring me down. They were, like, sizing me up like they wanted to fight me and they were trying to intimidate me. And, uh, and I remember leaving. I was like, thinking to myself, man, I have changed. I'm a new person. I'm not the same anymore. I was even kind of nice to them. You know what? A prophet is not welcome in his hometown. <laughs> I remember applying that to myself uh, and, and ignorantly, arrogantly. Um, but that is, how, that is an example of how you obliterate the Bible, okay? That's when you take a verse and you apply it wrongfully to yourself or to any other context. But I did that when I was 18. So maybe you've heard people apply that to, to themselves. Um, Well, anyway, back to the text. In saying this, Jesus actually, um, in saying this, this is not a casual thing. Jesus is actually putting himself in a long line of prophets that come before him, preaching and speaking the word of God. He's comparing himself to to all the other prophets of God. If you remember uh, your Old Testament, all of these prophets uh, who had come before him, who spoke the word of God, and all of these prophets were were what? They They were rejected even to pe- by people close to them, even by their hometownsmen, they were rejected. So when Jesus is saying that, he's putting himself in the line of prophets that come before him, that come to speak truth, and the world rejects the truth and rejects what these prophets have said, rejecting them, and that's what's happening to Jesus here today. Um, many uh, scholars, uh, they actually believe that the writer Mark, the gospel writer Mark, uh, is trying to remind us here of something. He's trying to remind us of when Jesus's families, if you were to go back to chapter three, Jesus's families, family and friends, they actually express embarrassment in that chapter. They're really embarrassed by Jesus. Uh, and and they're actually, they actually said that he was, quote, out of his mind. And so um, maybe Mark's trying to hearken us back to chapter three um, when his family members were embarrassed and they're saying he's out of his mind for saying these things and doing all these things. Um, and in that chapter, his own family members actually try to stop him. They try to just halt him. I would encourage you to go back to that passage. It's, it's really fascinating. So um, they're doubting him. They're offended by him. And Jesus responds by pointing out the dishonor he's receiving by his kinsmen. And so... I want us here today to ask a a question to ourselves Um, when we consider the claims of Christ, all of us here, when we consider what is being said, when we consider what we've heard about Jesus, are we offended? 
even in the face of evidence, even in the face of faithful friends that are sharing the gospel to us, bringing us, inviting us to church, even in the, in the face of evidence and people that are giving us the gospel, are we still offended? Are, are we actually, in our offense, um, are we rejecting him? If Jesus was here right now, would we actually reject him, seeing these things, hearing these things? Um, how about those of us here that uh, have grown up in the church, surrounded by Christian culture? Um, we've heard the stories. We've, we're familiar with Jesus. It's almost like we've walked with him in his life because we read the Bible. Um, we know the Bible well. We're familiar. Is it possible that for those of us here that are in that camp, is it possible that we uh, are taking him for granted? Is it possible that we are too comfortable with our faith? Uh, that we're now underappreciating Jesus. Uh, we're actually letting sin and idleness creep into our lives, causing us to actually forget what he's accomplished for us. Are we forgetting that he is our Lord, our King, our Master? And are we responding to him in worship, or are we just sort of lackadaisical in our faith? Friends, the reality is that both the skeptic and the stagnant believer both need to consider is that Jesus's message is offensive to an extent. His message actually is offensive. It's offensive because it actually confronts. It confronts all of us. It cuts to the heart. It calls us to, to examine our own hearts before the living God, the one who is righteous. He's righteous and good and merciful, but he's also a God that is just. He's also a God that must deal with sin. And so the question for us today is how are we responding to the message of Jesus and all of his teaching? How are we responding to the message of Jesus uh, and all of his teaching? Are you offended? Um, are you offended today? Have you heard the gospel message and taken uh, offense at it? If this is the case, if you are offended today, I pray, this is my prayer uh, for you, I pray that the Lord would show you his endless grace on the other side of the offense. I pray that he would open your eyes to the reality of your sin, the reality of sin and all of its pervasiveness, uh, the separation that sin brings between you and a righteous and holy God. Sin that is not merely about your deeds, a, good, a bad thing that you did, or um, do's and don'ts, or regrets from your past. But this is sin that the Bible talks about as something that corrupts the very heart and the very soul of our humanity. So if this, if this is you today, you're offended by this message, I would encourage you uh, to ask questions. I would encourage you to keep coming back uh, to this church. Uh, go, go to another church that's preaching the Bible, but keep coming back. Uh, ask your questions. These are not questions that uh, none of us here ha haven't had. I, I, I didn't always believe in Christ and embrace the gospel, and I had questions, and I kept coming back. I wanted to honestly know what it was that Christians believed, uh, and I wrestled alongside with Christians, and I asked them questions, and I challenged them, uh, and they graciously responded to me. And so I pray that you would keep coming back. Um, and I pray uh, that ultimately God would open your eyes to your need, the greatest need in your life today, uh, which is this, that you need a rescuer. You need a rescuer. And I pray that you would see that Jesus is that rescuer and he's beckoning you, he's inviting you, you who are weary 
by the world's burden, weary and heavy laden, and that you would find true and everlasting rest in him. And then for those of us in here that have been following Christ, we've been following Christ for years and years, uh, and we feel like our faith is dull, it's stagnating, uh, it's empty, perhaps cold. The experience of joy that you once had, it seems like it's gone. You're even, you're even doubting, is God real? Is he here? I personally, if, I'm can, if I can be candid with you, I've been struggling with this in my own personal Christian life. I've been in a valley where uh, I've, I've felt like the zeal and the joy that I once had in my Christian life um, is running dry. And, um, and it's been a struggle. And so um, this is something that is a very real experience for the Christian life. Um, and I want you all to know that Christians have been wrestling with these types of feelings for 2,000 years. This is nothing new to the Lord. And so I want to say to you, and I say this to myself, if you're currently doubting his goodness, if you're currently doubting his character, if you're currently doubting that he is near, I would encourage you and, and myself that we would look to his word, that we would find comfort in his word. We would even look to the Psalms. If, if you're familiar with the Psalms, this is the heartbeat of the Bible. The Psalms are songs and poems written by ordinary people like us that are struggling with belief in God. And it's almost like a commentary, a real life commentary of the Christian life. Uh, and man, we can take comfort in the Psalms. So if we are Christians and we're here and we're struggling in our faith, let's go to the Psalms together. Uh, I came across one verse in the Psalms, Psalm 42:11. I wanna read this to you. Uh, it was encouraging to me and it says this, why am I so sad? Why am I so troubled? I will put my hope in God, and once again I will praise him, my Savior and my God. And there are so many others. There are so many others in the Psalms and the rest of Scripture that would bring us encouragement. Uh, and then there are those of us here that are like on fire. We're here. We are more in love with Jesus than we've ever been. Um, everything seems to be going awesome in, the, in our Christian lives. Uh, and I would say this to you, continue, also continue running to his word for sustenance. Um, don't run to other things outside of his word. Run to his word. Don't, don't run to miracles and signs and wonders uh, for hope in him. Remember that his word is sufficient. His word is sufficient for our salvation. His word is sufficient for our joy. Um, Hebrews 4.12 reminds us that his word is living and active. His word, guys that I'm reading from today. It is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. His word will sustain your faith. So as we hear of Christ today, what is our response? Which brings us to our final point today, uh, and it is this. You will only find Jesus through faith. You will only find Jesus through faith. We'll look at verse 5. Uh, after Jesus is dishonored uh, by his kinsmen, it says this. It says this. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He could do no mighty work there. Now, we need to be careful. Uh, this is a verse that uh, at initial glance uh, might cause us to question um, Jesus' ability. Uh, we might be tempted to think, Jesus, the omnipotent son of God, was limited, says right here, he could do no miracle. So that's maybe a question we might be having is, is the son of God limited by unbelief of little old Nazareth? 
Um, is there something that Jesus could not do? And I want to say absolutely not, okay? This, uh, there's, there's nothing uh, about Jesus uh, that speaks of inability. This is not anything about uh, what he can and can't do. Uh, actually, Mark is not stressing this at all. Um, he's trying to show us Jesus' reaction. He's trying to show us Jesus' reaction to the unbelief of Nazareth. I was really struggling with this text, and I was reading through some commentaries, and I came across this one commentator. His name is Danny Aiken. He's the president of a, of a seminary in the U.S., and he says this uh, about uh, this particular passage uh, in his commentary. He, he puts it like this. He could do no miracles because he would not in the face of blatant unbelief. Morally and spiritually, he was constrained not to reveal his power in such an environment of rejection and unbelief. So in other words, what Mark is trying to show us, he's trying to show us that Jesus would not violate his moral and spiritual perfection by displaying his redemptive power in the midst of faithlessness. So he couldn't violate his moral and spiritual perfection by showing something amazing in the midst of such faithlessness. He would not do that. And to show you what I mean by this, um, I want to point to one example from last week's sermon. You guys remember Stephen, um, Pastor Stephen Wong, he was here and he preached through Mark 5. Think to last week's sermon um, where, where Pastor uh, Stephen was zeroing in on some of the miracles that Jesus was doing in chapter 5. And you'll remember uh, the one miracle account of the woman who touches Jesus' garment. She has a bleeding disease. She touches his garment and she's healed immediately, right? Uh, remember, Jesus is on his way, actually, to do another miracle. He's on his way to raise somebody from the dead. And there's crowds coming in around him. There's a huge mob. Everyone's touching him. Uh, but this one lady who's struggling uh, with ble this bleeding disease, she touches him. Uh, and she's healed immediately. And remember, you'll remember from last week what, uh, what Jesus says to this woman after, he touch after she touches him. He says this, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of the disease. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of the disease. It was her faith in his redemptive power of the Son of God that ultimately made her well. It wasn't the other way around where she touched him and because she was healed, then she believed. The miracles did not precede her belief. It was her faith uh, that made her well. And so Mark's trying to show us in this passage today that Jesus only performs works of redemption in the presence of faith. He only performs works of redemption in the presence of true faith. Um, I like the way uh, theologian Tim Keller puts it. Tim Keller says this of Jesus' miracles. Um, he says this, Jesus' miracles were not magic tricks designed to prove how powerful he was, but they were signs of the kingdom to show how his redemptive power operates. His miracles always healed and restored and delivered people in ways that reveal how we are to find him by faith and have our lives transformed by him. And he goes on to say, he could not do a deed that would not redeem. He could not do a deed that would not redeem. So friends, it is by our faith that we are saved, and it is by our faith that we please God. Moving on to verse 6 here, it goes on to tell us 
that he marveled, he marveled after this, uh, uh, saying he marveled at their unbelief. And then he went about among the villages teaching. He marveled at their unbelief. Now this word marvel, uh, it marveled, it could actually be replaced uh, with the word amazed. He was amazed. Um, he was actually stunned, um, surprised. Um, and really, I think what, what it's trying to show us is that Jesus actually was stunned. He was stunned that his own people, his own people that he knows that he's grown up with, um, that they were actually stunned. He's stunned that they are stunned at who he's claiming to be and what he's saying about himself and the miraculous works that he's showing them. They just could not get over their familiarity with Jesus and his humble beginnings. They could not get over the fact that Jesus, this guy's coming back to his, this little village of 200 as a mighty prophet, as a Messiah. They couldn't get over that. Well, from, from this story forward, uh, as we work through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see uh, that it only gets more and more difficult for Jesus. Uh, and his opposition and unbelief, it actually, it actually continues to grow. And actually, eventually, the entire nation of Israel rejects him. Uh, and they leave him to die. They leave him to die upon a bloody cross. And this is what happened 2,000 years ago. And so, once again, we come to the here and now, where we are today uh, in the world that we live in. And we think about the countries that we come from. We think about Malaysia. We think about Johor. And we ask ourselves, do we see this kind of unbelief around us? Do we see this kind of unbelief in maybe some of the other religions um, regarding the identity of Christ? Uh, we might hear statements like, Jesus would never stoop low enough to enter into the world um, to become uh, Jesus as God would never enter the world. We might hear statements like that. God would never enter humanity. He would never stoop that low. God would never become a man. And then we might hear some people from the world that would say, uh, Jesus would never, if he did come in the world and he was king and God, he would never start his ministry in a place like Nazareth. Like Jesus would come to Rome or Athens or you know, New York City or something like that. He would never start in Nazareth. And so we hear these kinds of questions of doubt. Um, and, and we ask the question, how about you and I? Do we struggle with unbelief when we hear the gospel week in and week out here at IBCBI? Uh, do we struggle with unbelief when we're in Bible studies on Tuesday night and uh, Thursday and Monday? Are we struggling with unbelief? Uh, maybe some of us here, we find it difficult to believe in the exclusivity of Christ that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one will come to the Father except by him. Do we struggle to believe that only Jesus can wash away our sins, only Jesus can be a perfect substitute to die on our behalf? Do we struggle to believe that he took the punishment that we deserve, that he conquered death? How about this? Do we struggle to believe that he resurrected from the grave three days later? Is this hard for us to believe? Well, friends, I want to say to you today, if you're filled with unbelief, um, I would challenge you to not come to Jesus on your own terms. A lot of people, they make Jesus into this, uh, this person that they want him to be. They go, okay, come to the word, and they come across uh, difficult passages in the scriptures, and they're offended. And so they say, I don't like that part of, of Jesus. I want this part of Jesus. I want the good moral teacher. 
I want the guy who does the miracles. I don't want the guy who confronts sin. I don't want the guy who deals with my heart. So don't come to him on your own terms. Come to the word on his terms. Start with the word. See what Jesus says about himself. And then pray. Pray that God, even if you're an unbeliever here today, pray that God would fill your heart with faith. That you would search diligently, earnestly, and honestly. Uh, and pray that you fill your heart with faith. And pray that by this faith, you would find the true Jesus, the Son of God. And then for those of us here that do believe, um, I know this, I'm speaking for myself here. We need our faith. I need my faith and joy in the Lord revived. I want to be excited about the Lord. I want joy in Him. And for those of you who feel the same way, I pray that we would together as a church pray that the Lord would revive our spirits, that the Lord would fill us with conviction that we'd come back to his word and, and in our doubt and in our un unbelief and in our skepticism that we would come to the word, that we would repent uh, of our sins uh, and that this word would encourage our souls. And I pray that we would come together as a church and that we would ask the Lord, especially during this Christmas season, that he would encourage us, give us joy, and that that joy and what he has done for us on the cross, accomplishing salvation for us, the joy that comes out of that would propel us forward to speak to a dying and lost world that is being sold a bill of goods. They're not being offered something that sustains them and gives them lasting joy. We as Christians, we have the gospel. We have the good news. Would this joy in that propel us to move forward in this Christmas season to speak of what he has done, to speak of his mighty name, to speak the good news. Friends, Jesus has come, he has been received, and he has been rejected. How will you respond to Jesus today? Let us pray.